Hello and welcome to the Quantum Wire, news and information from the frontiers of the quantum information science revolution. We're coming to you from the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership of the University of Maryland and National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm Kurt Suplee. And I'm Steve Ralston. And this week, we're going to be talking about, of all things, time, specifically the ongoing attempt to slice it into ever finer segments. Doing so, uh, most people may not be aware, uses the techniques of quantum information science, and there are labs around the world that are at work on that same problem, including not just the Joint Quantum Institute, but NIST's Boulder Laboratories and JILA, a partnership effort between NIST and the University of Colorado. Well, Steve, when most people think about time, they think about clocks ticking and the seasons changing and so on and so forth, and the connection to quantum mechanics is not exactly direct. What does quantum information have to do with time exactly? And let's start by talking about what time actually is. What time actually is, that's a rather profound question, but we'll try to uh, simplify it and at least give a... uh physical definition. So time is the interval between two events. So if you go back a ways, we kept time by seeing when the sun rose every day or counting the season. And that worked for humanity for many thousands of years. But as time went along, um, we came to the conclusion that that just wasn't quite precise enough. And then, of course, there were mechanical objects that you could use to set a standard, like, for example, the discovery in the Renaissance that a pendulum swung at exact fixed period. That made a new standard. And so we used mechanical standards for quite a long time. And then all of a sudden, uh, in 1967, something new happened in the way that we define time. So at that point, we went over to what we call an atomic clock. And an atomic clock basically means extract some information out of an atom and use that to keep time. And what's important about that is every atom of a particular element is identical to another atom of that element. So in fact, cesium is the atom that's used in our current definition of the second. And so if I have a cesium atom and you have a cesium atom, we're guaranteed by essentially the laws of quantum mechanics that they're going to behave in exactly the same way. Unlike if I built a pendulum and handed you the blueprints and you built the pendulum, there would always be slight imperfections and they wouldn't keep exactly the same time. The fineness with which you can define intervals of time depends critically on whatever it is you're using as your pendulum. And so in a grandfather clock, the thing might go uh, by one second or so, and so you could divide it up into some fraction of those. What's the big attraction of the atomic clock pendulum? Well, so the atomic clock uh, pendulum, say the cesium atom, Its characteristic frequency is 9.2 gigahertz, so that's 9.2 billions of oscillations per second, or think of it as ticking 9 billion times per second. So that means it's just a lot easier if I want to define time on some very short interval. It's easy if my clock is ticking rapidly. So we, when we say uh, using it as a pendulum and, and it's ticking, what, what exactly is ticking? As I understand it, you shoot some electromagnetic radiation at a cloud of these atoms, and they resonate at some particular characteristic frequency which is true forever for that element? 
That's right. So one of the consequences of quantum mechanics is the electrons in the atom or the nuclei in, in the atom can only exist in particular energy levels. And that means there's a particular frequency associated with the difference between those two energy levels. And so for our atomic clock of cesium atoms, we actually send microwaves at them. So just like microwaves from your microwave oven, only these are a little higher frequency. And what that does is it takes one of the electrons in the cesium atom and changes it to another internal level. And every cesium atom has those exact same two levels, and so they behave exactly the same. While we're on the subject of, of atomic clocks, the, the international standard now since 67 has been based on this one particular cesium atom. Why, why is it cesium? Why not you know, iron or sulfur or carbon? Well, it just turned out that cesium had some particularly attractive characteristics. So one is this natural frequency, which was 9 gigahertz. That's not too high that it's hard to come up with a microwave source that can do that. It's high enough that it's fast enough for the needs that we described. It also just turns out there's other little mundane reasons, like it's easy to make an atomic beam of cesium atoms. You just put them in a little shell and heat it up and have a hole and they come flying out of there, where if you tried to do that with iron, it would have to be much, much hotter. So a lot of it was just sort of practical reasons that this happened to be the, the ideal element. You could do this with rubidium, a number of other atoms, but the international timekeeping community is very conservative. They don't want to go willy-nilly changing the definition of the second from year to year. So once they pick something, they're going to keep with it as long as they possibly can. So that's why we're still working with because cesium. these cesium atoms aren't just uh, sitting around on a table, right? You, you must have to control the cesium atoms very carefully, yes? Yeah. Uh, so the cesium atomic clocks that were built in the 60s and used throughout the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, all just used essentially room temperature, slightly above room temperature, cesium atoms traveling in the vacuum. And it wasn't so much the thermal noise, but the issue is really a cesium atom traveling in the vacuum at room temperature, a little bit warmer, is moving at hundreds of meters per second. So imagine I ask you whether your watch is running fast or slow, and I give you 10 seconds to tell me that. You have a pretty hard time telling me whether it's running fast or slow. If instead I give you a month and you come back to me, you can give me a pretty good estimate of how well it's running. So what that shows you is the longer I can observe something, the more precisely I can measure its timing. And so that's the same idea whether it's your watch or our cesium atoms. So if I can slow the cesium atoms down so they're not running at hundreds of meters per second, but I can run them at millimeters per second, I can look at them much longer and do a much better job measuring their properties. Well, that is really, that is really slow. I mean, on an average day, the molecules in the air are running at, what, 1,100 feet per second, the so-called speed of sound. Um, this would be awful, awful, awful cold. How do you get your cesium atoms to move in millimeters per second? 
So we use the technique of laser cooling, where this strange uh, combination of laser light, which you tend to think heats, but if you put it in correctly, just the right frequencies, you can sort of suck the energy out of the atom. By the way, it's probably worth mentioning that that same technique, cooling and trapping atoms with laser light, won the 1997 Nobel Prize for Bill Phillips of NIST and the Joint Quantum Institute, for Stephen Chu, who is now the Secretary of Energy, and for their French colleague Claude Cointanouji. And subsequent refinement on those techniques are behind today's super-accurate atomic clocks, right? And in fact, some of the best, the best atomic clocks that are contributing to the second now are called atomic fountain. And the way they work is you use laser cooling to cool cesium atoms down to microkelvin temperatures, so millionth of a degree above absolute zero. And then you actually toss them up about a meter. And it's just like you take a ball and you toss it up in the air a meter and then catch it when it comes back down. You've got a long time to look at it, a good fraction of a second there. And that's actually what's done in an atomic fountain. And what you do, you use the frequency as a sort of tuning fork, right? The microwaves that you send at it are what you think is exactly the frequency at which these two, the the exchange between these two states takes place. And how do you know if your frequency, the, the microwaves that you're sending it, are exactly right? We use a process that shows up everywhere in physics and engineering, which is feedback. And essentially, imagine that my cesium atoms are a perfect clock, and I have an imperfect clock, which is my microwaves. And so what I'll do is I will, at the beginning of my experiment of, say, tossing the atoms up in my vacuum chamber, I synchronize those two clocks, one's the atoms, one's the microwaves, And then at the end of the toss, a half a second later, I look at whether my microwave's clock was running fast or slow, and then I correct it because I implicitly assume my cesium atoms are the correct time. And there are like 200 of those atomic clocks around the world that are averaged and then come up with um, what's called universal time. Okay, so so one of the interesting things about this universal time, which is sort of the world's agreement on what time it is, is, as you said, it comes about from a whole range of atomic clocks spread around the world, and they sort of get polled and ask you what time it is, and then they average that all together. Now, of course, I just told you that every cesium atom is identical, so why don't they give the identical results? Well... The cesium atoms are identical, but your apparatus isn't perfectly the same, and so you always have some systematic uncertainties and variations when you go to actually extract that information from the cesium atoms. So if you have one of these atomic clocks, like the National Institute of Standards and Technology does, or the U.S. Naval Observatory, which has a whole array of them, you send in your information to a bureau in Paris and tell them what time you think it is. So what happens is, let's say I have a clock and I report my time to the international body and it turns out I'm always slow. So what I'll do is I'll say, okay, then I must be doing something wrong or I have some slight problem. So let me tweak a knob to make my clock catch up to be the correct frequency so that eventually I'm reporting the correct time. But you do it all very slowly. You don't want things changing suddenly because that would confuse all the devices out there that care about uh, time. 
that's something we do need to talk about because a, a lot of folks are not aware that there are so many devices that are dependent on time. I mean, I, I guess the kind of um, gold standard example is the global positioning system. But in order to understand that, we have to explore this kind of interesting concept about the relationship between time and distance. Yeah, so a number of years ago, the international community changed the standard for distance. So it used to be the meter bar, which was kept in a laboratory in Paris, and it was a bar of platinum alloy, and it had two scratches on it a meter apart. And that was the world's definition of the meter. And the problem was uh, if the temperature in the room changed slightly, we know things expand and contract, so then you had to say, all right, let's keep the room at a particular fixed temperature. And you just don't know what happens. This is what we call an artifact standard. It's just a chunk of stuff. And so it was realized that we could change that by fixing the speed of light. So the speed of light is no longer an experimentally determined value, it's a defined value. So the speed of light is defined to be 299,792,458 meters per second. So now, that's a constant, that's a number, it doesn't change. So now I can flip that around and define the meter as being the distance light travels in that fraction of time. That fraction of time meaning as as in 1 299,792,458 of a second light travels exactly 1 meter. And so this this removes the artifact so now I define the second in terms of my atomic transition, so this is based on the kind of laws of physics, not just some random chunk of material. And now my length standard is also based on that through this constant that I've defined with that strange value. Which might seem to be uh, uh, just a bunch of pointy-headed abstractions were it not for the fact that it is in fact this exact relationship that lets your GPS unit in your car tell you where you are to within 10 or 12 feet, right? That's right. So GPS, the Global Positioning System, is an array of satellites that are orbiting and in them they have atomic clocks. And basically what they're doing is when I pick up my phone, which has a GPS receiver in it, getting the signals from the clocks, and the further away the clock is, the further away the satellite is. And, of course, the, the signals that are coming from the satellites travel at the speed of light because they are, uh, after all, electromagnetic waves. And so by triangulating these things, you can know where you are within an accuracy that is determined basically by how thin you can slice the time then. The operational unit of the speed of light we typically use in our lab is a foot per nanosecond. So that says light travels one foot in one billionth of a second. So now if I can start doing my timing at the nanosecond level, then I can in principle determine my location at the foot uh, that level. would be, of course, if you had 
perfect communication with the GPS satellites, for example, if Earth had no atmosphere, which would make it kind of difficult. But there's some noise in the system, and I've been told that the average time to get a good GPS signal is you can get it within 50 nanoseconds, which by your lab standard would be within 50 feet, which is, uh, as we say, close enough for government work. But obviously, there are lots and lots of people who would like to improve on that standard. Yeah, you can imagine if you can, you know, get your navigation system down to a foot, let's say, then uh, you could have a lot more applications. You could imagine landing a plane with your eyes closed just using GPS because GPS would know where the runway was. Now, here's another thing, though, that, that folks don't necessarily know is how important time is to cell phone conversation. It is not widely understood that you don't get a direct signal. When you and I are talking together on a cell phone, it's not like the entire electromagnetic spectrum devotes a, a space to us. Our conversation gets sliced up into time bits. That's right. Yeah. So pretty much all modern communications, whether it's cell phones, whether it's television signals, whether it's Internet traffic, is all we're trying to stuff more and more information down a wire or a optical fiber. And the way you do that is slicing up time into shorter and shorter segments and then packing your information in. So you need clocks all over the place to keep things synchronized. So if I'm going to send you a packet of information, I want my computer to think it's the same time your computer is so that when my packet comes, it's coming at the right time and you know who it's from. So what we have today here in, in uh, the middle of 2010 is we have a global, uh, universally agreed upon global time system that provides us with time that is accurate in uh, nanoseconds, about one nanosecond a day. That's about one part in 10 to the 14th or one part in, in 100 trillion, give or take a nickel or a second. But that's not apparently good enough for the, the demands of modern life. You just pointed out that our clocks are good to, say, part in 10 to the 14. Well, 9 gigahertz means basically almost 10 to the 10th clicks per second. And so that 10 to the 14 compared to 10 to the 10th means that we're kind of, there's four orders of magnitude there, that we're actually figuring out the center of our frequency basically during one cycle. I'm chopping one cycle up by 10,000. And that just gets really hard to do technically. Um, so if you want to do better, you can try to divide your interval between ticks of your clock by more than a part in 10,000, and that just gets really hard to do because all kinds of obscure systematic effects start showing up. So the other thing you can do is say, okay, let's go to a higher frequency. Um, why not? Why should we stick at microwaves? So let's go up into the optical range, which we're talking then frequencies of 10 to the 14th to 10 to the 15th per second. So four or five orders of magnitude higher frequency. So if now we can do as well in terms of how we divide the interval, we could in principle gain four or five orders of magnitude 
more precise clocks. So uh, speaking of clocks and optical frequencies, we just happen to have uh, an expert in that very subject right on board. This is uh, JQI fellow Gretchen Campbell, who's come to join us. Tell us a little bit about the work that you were doing out at Jilla and what you're doing here and kind of where it fits into the overall progress of clockwork. Sure. So at Jilla, I was working on developing a, the, a next generation optical atomic clock using strontium atoms. Now that I've moved here to JQI, I'm still going to be using strontium atoms, but instead of developing a clock, I'm going to be using the ultra precise techniques we have de developed to control strontium atoms in order to have precise time clean keeping, I'm going to be using those techniques to study other quantum physics. So what is it about, about strontium? Strontium is maybe a little bit heavier than copper, zinc. What's, what's so good about it for your research? What makes strontium special is that when you look at the, uh, the atomic structure of strontium, in its outermost shell it has two electrons. So because of that, it gives it a very special energy level structure that gives it a uh, an optical transition, a, a, a resonance between two different energy levels, which has a, a very, a very well-known transition frequency, and it's a, a very narrow transition frequency. So ma this makes it good for an optical clock, since we're able to, to very precisely measure the resonance frequency and to really uh, to break down. And when you say transition frequency, you mean between the ground state of an electron and the excited state of electron. Exactly. So we're looking at uh, the difference between energy levels for, for electrons in the atom. But th these transitions are what we would call forbidden, right? Yeah. So in strontium, it turns out the transition we use is a, a doubly forbidden transition. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> so it means that, that normally the, uh, the electrons would not be able to make a transition between these, these two levels. But due to uh, the, the heaviness of the atom, it actually turns out that thanks to quantum mechanics, there's a, a very small transition probability, a very you know, small probability that the atoms can be excited to this level. So in a, a kind of a normal optical transition, like what most people are familiar with when they see the yellow light of the sodium vapor lamp, the lifetime of that excited electron is on the order of 10 nanoseconds. So what's the lifetime of these states that you're using? Well, we don't know exactly, um, but it's on the order of a thousand seconds. It's so long that no one has been able to actually measure the lifetime yet. Yeah, a thousand seconds. Oh, that's longer than my first date. And then another thing about what you're doing is you're, you're holding on to your atoms in a somewhat different way. That We, we talked uh, earlier about uh, cesium clocks and, and fountain technology, but that, that's got nothing to do with what you're doing, right? No, so in, in, instead of having a sort of an expanding cloud of atoms or an untrapped atoms, we hold our atoms in a, an optical lattice. So this allows us to hold on to the atoms very, very tightly so that the motion of the atoms doesn't affect the, the resonance frequency we measure. Whereas in, in cesium clocks or in fountain clocks, the, the motion of the atoms can still have effect, small effects on the, the frequency you measure. Yeah, and I guess when we're getting to these levels of precision, you have to worry about all those small effects, no matter how small they may seem in the beginning. The more precise we get, the more and more things crop up. It's kind of hard for people to, to picture how you create an optical lattice, which is a sort of a basket weave made of light. I like to prefer egg carton, personally. Or egg carton made of light, that's fine. Explain to us just a, just a little bit about how that works. So actually, for us, it's... it's very simple. We take a, a laser beam. Now you can think of a, your laser as being a, a traveling wave. 
Now we just reflect that laser beam back on itself and this gives you a standing wave. It gives you this egg carton shape. Now we can actually trap the atoms in sort of the, the nodes of this where the intensity is the largest. So in our, our most recent experiments, we're able to actually surpass the performance of cesium clocks. Um, so our clocks are now about a, a factor of 40. I guess better than the, the best cesium clocks. Now this makes strontium an, an ideal candidate for actually becoming the next time standard, where actually strontium is not the only clock under development. Um, there's actually a number of groups worldwide and also at, at Boulder developing different kinds of clocks. Now strontium is a, a neutral atom. Now there's other experiments with mercury and uh, aluminum, which are actually ions. Now in those experiments, you s use a single ion. So you're actually only measuring the frequency from one ion. Now, an advantage of our experiment is we typically have on the order of 100,000 atoms. So that means that we're measuring 100,000 atoms at the same time, which means that potentially we could have a, a much larger signal. But, you know, there's different limitations to either these neutral atom clocks, strontium, ytterbium is another clock under development, and also these ion clocks. So it's unclear, you know, at the end of the day, which of these clocks is, is going to turn out to be the, the best replacement for cesium. So what's the best number at the moment, a part in 10 to the, the what? So in terms of stability, it's now uh, the, the ion clocks now have shown um, down to around 4 or 5 times 10 to the minus 17. Yeah, that's small. Now by ions, you mean an atom that has lost an electron and therefore can be controlled easily in electric fields. What makes them attractive for clocks? So because they can be controlled by electric fields, it's very easy to create very tight traps. Now I talked about for our strontium atoms, we have to hold them in this, this optical lattice in order to get very tight confinement, but they're able to do it much more easily. So they're able to get rid of any emotional effects or things like that. Um, now it turns out that actually one of the limit, biggest limiting factors of clocks today is the fact that you know, we have, even though our, our experiments are done in a vacuum chamber, they're sitting in a laboratory, which is at room temperature. And, you know, in your room temperature lab, in your, you know, living room, there's sort of a, a bath of radiation around you. Um, this is sort of called the, the black body radiation. And this is actually the biggest limitation to clocks today, is this black body radiation. And it turns out that the ion clocks are a little bit less sensitive to this than our strontium clock. So as we get closer to uh, slicing time ever more finely, is there some upper limit to this? Is there some uh, threshold beyond which we can't go? Well, the biggest challenge is that in order to evaluate your clock and to, to see how good your clock is, you have to compare it to another clock. You know, it's no different that if you want to know if your, your watch is running on time, you compare it to the clock on your wall. Well, it's the same thing with our clocks, which means that, well, first, to see how good your clock is, you have to have a second clock, which is just as good. And these are very complex experiments. So typically the way we do that is we, say, compare a clock in one lab to a clock, you know, maybe in an adjacent lab or, or just down the road. And there you have challenges of time is actually affected by your elevation and where you are. Whoa, whoa, time is affected by your elevation? It is, there's, there's relativistic effects. You know, as you get higher and higher in altitude, you know, your clocks will, will run at a different frequency. So it becomes a challenge of just knowing how this changes between locations. For example, when I was at Jilla, we compared our clock to a, a ytterbium clock under development at, at NIST. And one of our 
our biggest uncertainties for comparing to either the Eutrobium clock or the cesium clock was just uncertainties in the elevation between the two locations. And they were only a kilometer apart, right? But there was this difficulty that our lab was in the basement and their lab's on the second floor. So this is Einstein's revenge, right? Because this is a consequence of general relativity. Is but the difference actually measurable? Oh, it's very measurable. Now, I told you that uh, the our clocks the, the iron clocks, are, their stability is down to 10 to the minus 17. Um, for us, the gravitational shift was, you know, a 10 to the minus 15 effect. Whoa, 100 times larger than that. So these could be very expensive altimeters. To flip it around the other way, I think I heard Tom O'Brien, who is the head of the Time and Frequency Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, where you work, talk one time about how you could use these as gravimeters. So that is the other thing that causes the uncertainty is, you know, Boulder has these mountains, and uh, the Atrobium and Cesium clocks were closer to the mountains than our lab was. So you have this big hunk of rock. So there, that also causes uncertainties is, you know, what the local gravitational potential is. So yeah, if we could take our, our clock, which currently covers four optic stables, and say, put it in a backpack, you could walk around and, and use this as a... to. To measure. And the higher you went, the longer you'd live. Until you fell off the cliff. And on that cheerful note, our time is up. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. Meanwhile, if you'd like to stop by the website, it's jqi.umd.edu. There's a lot of multimedia stuff there and a lot of things to catch you up on what's going on in the world of uh, quantum information science. And while you're there, you might want to have a look at the uh, Physics Frontier Center supported by the National Science Foundation. That website is at pfc.umd.edu. So for Steve, Carl, and the rest of the JQI fellows, thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.